Greetings, everyone from Helsinki. Uh, thanks for having me. I just said, when you mentioned my background, I started to think about that when I left the high school in back in the 90s, I moved to Germany to study violin. I was about to become a musician, an orchestra violinist. And after two years studying there, I decided that it's maybe better to do something else. And if someone would have said back in the 90s that in, in 2020, I'm talking about this information and how the Finnish society is defending itself from different kind of malign information influence activities, I would have laughed. First, a lot of things have changed. I have a shorter hair and uh, and uh, I'm wearing these kind of shirts nowadays. Nowadays, yeah. But, but I have a, uh, I started working in the government communications back in 2009. I was working at the time at the Finnish uh, uh, police headquarters, the National Police Board. And Finnish police was one of the first authorities to open any kind of social media account. So but it was uh, 2009. And, uh, no one talk about that there might be of course there were some uh, there were kind of uh, already kind of minor trolls at the time but we didn't think so much about that there might be some kind of coordinated action behind that kind of activity targeting the finnish society as a whole whole and we, we thought that they were just individuals raising up their voices etc and uh, and back back that time in 10 years 10 years ago we, when we talked about social media we mainly discussed only about the good things social media could provide us openness, transparency, and the new ways to connect each other, etc. And then 2014 changed quite a lot. Uh, then when uh, Russia attacked Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea, then became obvious that there are state actors who are also targeting Finland with malign information influence activities. Then, of course, at the, at the time I was working in the prime minister's office, and then we were starting to think about that, uh, how should Finland respond to this kind of activities from the government perspective. So first we looked at uh, the, our school system uh, and th th thought about that, of course, media literacy and media education have been part of our official school career since back the 1970s. I remember when I was back in the 80s at school, we already visited news, news media, their newsrooms, uh, visited, journalists told about their work, etc. So we had already media education at, at that time. And now when my little daughter went to uh, kindergarten, so they already had media education there. They, while they were playing using iPads and other tablet computers, the kindergarten teacher taught little children about the magic world, which is behind this classy, classy box where you can touch and tap and uh, swipe and do, do things like that. And uh, kind of media education and media literacy, it's kind of a lifelong journey in, in Finland. So it's also in, it continues also in adult education. NGOs are playing a very important role. It's not only state-funded act, act, activity, etc. But as I'm a very boring and great Finnish civil servant, I like to use PowerPoint slides. So I will show a few of them. Uh, a few of them, just a moment, I will share my screen a little bit, think about. Okay, hopefully you can see. There is our national emblem. For me, the lion. Uh, it, res it, it resembles uh, determination. There is a lion ready to strike. But one of my foreign colleagues once asked me that uh, if you look at your national emblem and that the United Nations says that you are the happiest country in the world for, I think, five times in a row. So how on earth, you're, if you look at your national emblem, there is a lion hitting his own head with a sword. How on earth can you be the happiest nation in the world? There's been also conspiracy theories that, in fact, Finland... I will switch to bigger screen. Finland doesn't exist. That the Finland is a conspiracy theory, but I can assure you that we we are here. We are here up north, between Sweden, Norway, and Russia. 
and we have over 1,300 kilometers, so 1,000 miles, a joint border with Russia. And due for historical reasons, uh, there's been uh, quite a few uh, wars between uh, between Russia and Sweden. And for 700 or 800 years, Finland was part of the Kingdom of Sweden. And from 1809 till 1917, Finland was become was part of uh, the Russian Empire. But usually when we think about uh, society's resilience and uh, to, for example, disinformation or other malign information influence activities, then usually we, there are few few things that we can learn from, from each other. But at the end, I think every nation should find their own ways. And for us, Finnishness is the best way. And this is not from the COVID period with social distancing. This picture was taken a couple of years ago. And there's the old stereotype of us Finns that we we like to keep our social uh, uh, we 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 like to keep one or two meters distant between each other and very very shy shy people. And then someone took this photo. There was a major snowstorm in Helsinki, and if you look at how the Finns are standing there in a huge snowstorm, there is kind of a geometrical pattern. You can see that there is almost one and a half meters or two meters between each other. Those persons they don't know each other, but still they want to keep the distance and they don't they don't look for shelter under the the bus top but but that's that's the way and a little brief history of Finland as I mentioned uh, Finland was from the 14th century till 1809 part of Sweden and then there was a war between Finland uh, Sweden and uh, Russia and from 1809 till 1917 Finland became a grand duchy uh, grand duchy and it was an autonomous part of Russian empire and if you look at the time and the development of uh, Finnish society has gone through, so in the 1850s, Finland was really the poor, one of the poorest countries in the world. And then what started, there was a rapid uh, economical growth. And, and if you look at all the societal circumstances at that time, the child mortality rate was very high. People could not read. So Finland was really, really poor. And under the Russian rule, 1899, Russia started Russification policy. So there was oppression of Finnish language. Uh, our, our rights or our legislation was uh, taken down, etc. But Finns started resistance and protest and against uh, against Russia at that time. And what, but then good things also happened. In 1906, universal suffrage is established. And also it included the right for women to stand for elected office. And it was first time in Europe and second in the world. I think New Zealand was the first one. And then finally, in December 1917, Finland became independent state. But it hasn't been a smooth sailing ever since. So immediately after we became independent in 1917, there was a civil war. The communist Red Army tried to seize the power from the uh, legal government uh, and the Red Army was support, Finnish Red Army was supported by the Bolsheviks. And it, there was casual 30,000 uh, deaf people. And if you think about that time, uh, the population of Finland was a little bit over 3 million, that was big. But then a good thing started to happen after the horrible civil war. There became first kind of idea of a Nordic welfare state. Then child mortality rate uh, dropped and also the level of uh, income of people started to rise. There were social programs, education, schools, systems started to ramping up, etc. But then came the Second World War, and if you, when we are talking about societal resilience and 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 understanding as society, then it's important to look at uh, history and also the context that a nation is uh, living. So uh, Stalin and his uh, generals uh, counted wrong. So when they attacked Finland in 1939 without a declaration of war, 
and the Winter War started, they miscalculated. They thought that after the Civil War, Finland would, uh, the Finnish society would be so polarized, so divided that it, it would be easy piece of conquer uh, the Finland. And uh, so that uh, 3.1 million people, it is not a resist. They cannot resist the uh, so mighty Soviet army. But what we fin my grandfathers and mothers did, so they defended, they stood up. And uh, after 105 days of fierce fighting, the war ended and Finland remained independent. So the Red Army did never uh, enter Helsinki. So, uh, and I think one of the mistakes Stalin and the generals did that they didn't understand the healing, kind of healing and reconciliation process, which started immediately after the civil war. And it was kind of, uh, kind of, uh, people, the society started to develop and also how the people perceive the Finnish society, even, even though that there were this polarization between the old uh, communists and, and the government troops, for example, but still a lot of good things started to happen. And after the Second World War, then of course the Cold War era, Finland was balancing between West and East. So uh, Finland was a capitalist society, democratic society, and, uh, but then there was balancing between West and East. And finally, 95, Finland became member of the European Union. And now uh, I think um, the, uh, there are just two countries, Hungary and Turkey. And when they, are, uh, rati when they will ratify uh, the Finnish, Finland and Sweden's uh, NATO application, then we will be also members of NATO. So it hopefully happens soon. But I met one of my foreign colleagues a little while ago, and I said that when we met last time a year ago, and if I would have said that Finland and Sweden is about to become a NATO members, then I would you have believed? And I said no. And there is kind of a, when I'm talking about the winter war. So what is happening now in Ukraine? Ukraine fighting, defending their independence against Soviet aggression. Uh, so it resembles and it, it it remembered us our our fought our fight in 1939 and 1940. We were alone fighting against Soviet Union at that time. Poorly equipped army, poor army, small country, small nation, but we, but the willingness to defend our country. So we, we, we managed to survive and uh, stay independent. One of our old presidents once said that uh, he, wrote an, uh, he wrote a book uh, called uh, The Idea of Russia. He, our president Koivisto, he passed away uh, five years ago. And uh, so after, he, after his presi president period, he, he wanted to understand Russia better. And then he wrote a book called uh, The Idea of Russia. And when the book was published in Russia about 10 or 15 years ago, then one Russian journalist asked President Koivisto that, what's the idea of Finland? And Koivisto, Koivisto's right, straight answer was to stay alive. That, that, that's the idea of Finland. And then, uh, also, some good things, uh, things I would like to uh, bring up. So the first Freedom of Information Act in the world dates back to 1776. And it was uh, at that time, Finland was part of Sweden. And it was Sweden who introduced the first uh, act in 1776. But we always want to give the credit to uh, us Finns, as the uh, Information Act was initiated by a Finnish priest, by Anders Judenius. And uh, the reason was that uh, when Finland was part of Sweden, so the Finnish uh, statesmen uh, felt that they don't, the fin we Finns, we don't get enough information from, from Stockholm. So the Stockholm is going making decisions, which are also uh, 
targeting us so that we don't know anything about them. That's why they wanted to know and learn more about the decisions the Swedish government is doing in Stockholm in the 18th century. So that's why the priest understood and started to uh, lobbying that there should be uh, this kind of act. And then again, kind of why when we are talking about media literacy and media education and the Finnish school system, I think our uh, it's been kind of a core idea in our uh, in in Finland that uh, why why education is important. And one of uh, our old philosoph national philosopher and statesman, you have Wilhelm Snellman. Uh, said in uh, back in 19th century, Finland was at the at the time part of uh, uh, Russia, and then started to uh, develop the idea that one day Finland should become independent. Finland should become we Finns. We should be proud of us, uh, proud of being Finns. So his idea was that the best protection for a small nation is civilization. So education has always played very important role, educating people, civilizing people, and that was kind of a core. Uh, kind of the basement of uh, of the statehood or nation, also feeling being a Finn or, or nation state Finland. And if you think about the school already in, back in 19th century, till, uh, then school education started to develop. And if you think about what it's now today, and Finnish school system is praised uh, globally, uh, it being a very uh, how, how good it is. But of course, if you look at recent years, the numbers, so uh, those results, for example, in PISA, so the, the results have, uh, have drop, uh, dropped. And there's now a lot of discussion in Finland that why the, the school results have uh, started to, to, to uh, go, go down and, uh, and so forth. And if you think public libraries educating and civilizing people, they still play a very important role. There is, this is a picture of the new uh, Central Library in Helsinki, which was opened in 2017, and it's more like a citizen's living room and ordinary library. And then still, we still pack the books in the buses and we try the books uh, around the country. This picture is taken in Finnish Lapland. There is a small uh, uh, library bus, and if you look, there is a reindeer visiting the library bus. So we, we provide information everyone who is visiting Finland or residing in Finland. And 2018, when uh, President Putin and Trump uh, uh, held their summit in Helsinki, so the biggest newspaper in uh, Finland, the Helsinki Sanomat, uh, made a huge advertisement campaign, communications campaigns in Helsinki. All the billboards, all the advertisement, places where you can put advertisement where covered these kind of uh, headlines. Mr. President, welcome to the land of free press. And they were also in, written in Russia and also in English. And they had an, other, other messages as well. And uh, then talking about uh, le legislation and legalism. So when we are with Finns, we have a very strong sense of rule of law. And when Finland was part of Russia, and, and I mentioned the Russification pro uh, process st program started, so what we Finns did, and we wanted to defend our auto autonomical status by, uh, by referring to our legislation. And there is an old picture dating back in 1899, when the Russification project started, and there is the Finnish maiden of Finland. And then there is the Russian two-headed eagle ripping, ripping the law book of, of that time. But that, that was already seen at the time that rule of law is very important.
And nowadays, if you look, a lot of things has, have good, has happened. In different global rankings, Finland and other Nordic countries are doing, doing very well. There are, here are some, just some uh, examples of that. And I think when, when you are talking about the societal resilience to different kinds of threats, uh, whether they are uh, storms, whether they are man-made, whether they are na natural disasters, then the more a society feels or the more, the, the better a society uh, is, feels and is. And the, the more people feel that they have, they have a place in a society, the more the people feel that the society is respecting them, they are treated equally. They, they believe in, uh, trust the democracy, political institution and other societal institution, the more a resilient society is. And I took this picture in uh, two years, uh, almost one and, two, uh, sorry, one and a half, two, two and a half years ago when the uh, state of emergency was declared for the first time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This was, uh, I think, 16th of March. And the day before the government and declared the state of emergency in Finland. And the government recommended people and authorities recommended people that please stay at home and work, work remotely if you can do it. So that keep the distance, uh, social distancing is good, good and stay at home if you can. It was not a mandate and the government not dictated people to stay at home and the police did not chase down people around streets and, and lock, lock, them, lock them and uh, keep them out of streets. And instead, there was just recommendations. And the morning, the next morning when I went to my workplace, the government palace, the prime minister's office, and I started to look around and this is 8 a.m., about 8 a.m. in it should be a busy rush hour time in Helsinki. And the streets were empty. It, it, I really, really felt that I was working in an abandoned city. And then I started to think about that there must be something that, and it goes back to the question of trust. And also during the whole COVID-19 pandemic, even though that people, uh, in the end, people started to be very tired about, uh, of uh, restrictions and, uh, and uh, easing up restrictions, etc. But still people followed. We didn't have any major protests at all. This information didn't play at any kind of role in Finland. So for when this vaccina vaccination process started, so people were really were waiting to get uh, get the, get the short, shots, etc. So we didn't have any problems with that, and people listened what the authorities were saying. People were listening what politicians were saying, and also when the statistics Finland, which is the statistics authority in Finland, asked the people. Uh, that where are you going? Where are you getting your information regarding COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, where do you want to get your information? So it was a little bit surprised that if if I remember that uh, how many years we've been discussing that how uh, the traditional news media is going to uh, going to disappear and the so social media is going to rule the world. But the first one, two, three positions in that opinion polls and surveys where where people get their information and where they want to get their information was at number one, television, number two, newspapers and their online versions, and number three, radio, number four, uh, of, uh, authorities, websites, and then friends, etc. And the social media influencers that, that they were on the bottom of the list. And that was kind of a relieving thing that uh, people still knew in a crisis situation, for example, that where they, uh, where they find reliable in journalistic information. And according to Reuters Institute, year by year, 
Finns trust the most the traditional news media. Yeah, and I think that's also one one of the cornerstones of our, of, our, of the resilience of our society. And again, we're talking about uh, trust. And when we had our parliamentary elections in 2019, then we were thinking about, of course, there was the possibility of election interference. And election interference was kind of a hot topic at the time in, in different countries. And several many countries where they had held they had elections at the time. And of course, they got some uh, took some precautionary measures against possible election interference, and so did we. And then we started to think about that: what's the kind of the 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 most important thing in our elections we need to protect, and that's the trust on our election system. And then we th started to think about how should we communicate about the, uh, to to the to our citizens about the possibility of election interference that someone wanted to. Uh, hack our ideas about the reliability of the elections, and then we came the idea that we we, we launched a communications campaign. It's what which was called, as we are very humble Finns, was that the Finland has the best elections in the world, and why is that? And uh, the, the idea was that we've been running more than 110 years reliable elections. We still have the uh, uh, paper, pencil, and the booth, and the election system is very robust. It old-fashioned. Uh, but still, it's impossible to hack. You can count every single vote as many times as you want. We store those uh, old ballots, and in every single citizen has the right to go and start counting them even 10 years after the elections. So it's it's impossible to hack. But what someone could try to do is try to hack our impression, impressions or perceptions or ideas about the reliability of the elections. And that was kind of the core, core idea. And when we are talking about election interference, then we usually tend to think about that it's kind of a social media era phenomenon, but no, it's not. Uh, in 1950, when we had presidential election, if you look at the grumpy old man in the left-hand corner, he was president at the time, Juho Kusti Paasikivi. So he, when he was running for the second term in 1950, so the Soviet Union didn't like him. So they launched a campaign against Paasikivi. And uh, and but they failed. Pasikivi got, uh, got re-elected, and he served as the president until the 1956. Of course, the information environment was totally different, and and the me and the media were different. But uh, still, there is nothing new with the, these kind of issues. And uh, when when uh, Russia launched uh, its attack on Ukraine in um, in February. And when a discussion started in Finland that uh, should Finland apply uh, for, for a NATO membership together with Sweden, then suddenly we saw a huge international media interest in Finland. And I don't know how many news media outlets visited Finland and uh, visited our uh, uh, civil shelters, etc. And then, uh, then I think the, many of the news stories were focusing on how prepared Finnish societies, and there are a lot of historical reasons. Those film TV crews uh, visited the shelters uh, under under uh, under the in our bedrock under Helsinki, etc. And if you think about uh, why I say that preparedness is our DNA, this is the church, uh, Agricola Church, is a big, very big church, right in the downtown Helsinki. It was built already in 1930s, it, and it represents functionalistic style architecture. But when it, the church was designed in 1930s, so the, if you look at the tower and and and, uh, and the spire, so it's 103 meters 
tall and uh, if in and or 350 feet high in a good weather you can all see the tower in Tallinn in Estonia across the Gulf of Finland the distance is 80 kilometers and when the church was designed so it was estimated and calculated that in if a war comes then the enemy bombers uh, aircraft fighter aircraft use the tower as a navigational aid so what the architects and designers did they, they, there is a mechanism that you can retractable the tower down. And when the Second World War started in 1939, when the Winter War started, and when it became obvious that Russia is going to attack, the Soviet Union is going to attack Finland, so the tower was lowered down. And when the war was over in 19, uh, 1945, so I think it was 1946 when uh, they uh, raised up again the tower. And now I have... A, I have visited a couple of embassies there, which are around the, uh, the church, and I have always say, told this story to those uh, embassy <laughs> councillors that if you looked at, if you look outside the window and look at the church, and if you are talking about preparedness, there is a church which was built in 1930s, and the architects and designers already thought about the possibility that someone is going to attack Finland. We should be prepared, prepared. And here are some uh, headlines of the news stories we saw. There were stories about bunkers under Helsinki and under, under bunkers around the country, etc. And even though when the Cold War was over, so in many countries, uh, they everyone there were these uh, story, stories and that how the war is over and there will never be new wars in Europe. And so, and countries started to do minimizing their uh, armies, etc. But and but we Finns, we didn't. Instead of Finns, we will still continue to develop our civil defenses and our military defenses. Government have modernized our army, uh, etc. Civil uh, civil crisis management was developed further, further, further. We we still maintain a stock stockpiles full of uh, food or petrol, medicines, etc., etc., etc. And I can say that someone even laughed at us that you are old school and why you are still why you're still storing rubber boots in bunkers etc no one needs those things anymore but no if you look at the time then i think that we were we were right there's a picture and in peacetime those shelters are used for 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 uh, for example cafes cultural centers there are even swimming pool in one of them parking spaces, storage spaces, but in a crisis situation, all those places can be converted in, like, in, a, in a couple of days as a, a shelter to protect people. And then we, Finland is well prepared for a crisis. There are stockpiles and we have maintained those stockpiles. Uh, we had them those already got the Cold War, Cold War era and also afterwards and still. So you can say that the Finnish society is very well prepared for a different kind of crisis. It's not only war, but it's also different uh, other whether hybrid uh, hybrid uh, attacks or other, other kind of natural disasters, etc. And as our president said uh, in in February that, uh, and he also said, I think he said many times that the most important defense line goes between the ear, between the ears of everything. And if you looked at how the heroic uh, fight Ukrainians doing, it's the willingness of defend the country. So, and it's the same story we had in 1939 in winter war. 
when Soviet Union attacked, the willingness to defend, even though that the army was poorly equipped and undermanned, but still then that's a strength. And this is already old, old news story. And uh, CNN visited us many in 2019, and I was one of the experts interviewed in this news story. And, uh, and I think the, the, if you look at the headline, so I must admit that I don't agree uh, that so that, uh, of course, I would, of course, we, I, I would wish that there would be time that we would say that, okay, the war against fake news is over and uh, n there will be no fake news anymore in the future, but that's, that's unfortunately not the case. So that no one can say that there is a kind of date when, when this, if you, even if you use the war like terms, terminology, that the war is over. We, we had these kind of cases 200 years ago, 1000 years ago, we will have it tomorrow, tomorrow 10 years of time and 100 years of time. This is kind of kind of ongoing story. So that, that's why we need to be prepared and we need, we need always to understand the world we are living in. It's kind of a civic skill, understanding what disinformation is, what cyber attacks are, etc. It's a civic skill. In order to, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can, uh, you, you can do your daily businesses and be an active citizen. You need to understand all those uh, all those uh, forces and all those things which are impacting on your day, daily life. And as I said, that there has been several new headlines and about how resilient the Finnish society is. And it goes back to the very basic nature of our society and the level of education and also the trust. And as, I'm, as I showed you, there are, according to different rankings, so then Finland is one of the least corrupted nations in the world and people uh, trust Really, really trust the authorities. If I remember right, there was a, one opinion poll uh, recently. So close to 90% of Finns say that they trust, for example, the Finnish law enforcement, the Finnish police, and the defense forces and uh, other 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 authorities. So it's 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 great thing. And Guardian wrote an article, and uh, as I mentioned already, media education, media teaching critical thinking, it already starts at kindergarten and it's a, it's a lifelong journey. And as uh, we always have said that I think the first line of defense and, and our real life heroes are the, uh, are the teachers and also the news media, journalists who are, who are, are doing critical news stories and uh, etc. And uh, oh, here's the second one. And BBC was here in uh, Helsinki. Uh, in the spring, this is a this this is an older picture, and it doesn't. Uh, it's a little bit taken from a bad angle, but th this is the Citizen Square in downtown Helsinki, and the BBC journalist interviewed me. Uh, if you look at the right-hand corner, there is the red uh, red building, uh, sorry, yellow building, which is the new Central Library. Already, I already discussed, and uh, we had the interview there, and uh, then the journalist asked uh, asked me about the, what is what does a resilient society needs? And uh, I said to him that just look outside the window. There are the, all the elements that society needs. There is the, uh, on the left-hand corner, you can see the massive building with pillars. That's the democracy, that's the parliament. The green building in the middle, that's the music center of Helsinki, it's culture. And you can see tiny little spire above uh, the, the green building, that's the national museum. 
Then there is the Museum of Contemporary Art on the left-hand side. Then there is the several news media outlets, their offices uh, are uh, newsrooms uh, are around the square. So it's really, and if you think the square itself, it's citizens' living room. It's a common place where people come together. They have, they have, a, they have festivities. We have festivities there, and people spend times, and uh, etc. So, and in fact, if about one kilometer from there, there is the district court of Helsinki. So, kind of representing the rule of law. So, so there is the culture, there is the history, there is the education, civilization, there is the democracy, rule of law media so it's a, a common space for ordinary citizens common for everyone and if you look to the central library it's more of a more of kind of citizens living room common joint place open for everyone uh, and that's the, that's the thing you need need and then one thing is the concept of comprehensive security and that's I, the last issue I, I would like to talk to you uh, then it, the concept of comprehensive security uh, started to develop from our experiences from the Second World War. As a small nation, we need to co collaborate in order to survive. And uh, we have developed the concept uh, since the Second World War. It's not only for our deal managing a military crisis, but it's also managing everyday crisis, whether they are traffic jams, whether they are, uh, for example, uh, accidents in a, a power plant, for example, or whether they are natural disasters, storms, etc., etc. And today, if you look at this kind of different kind of threats we are facing and societies are facing, so it, they are targeting, if you think of, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, it targeted, targeted the whole society. So that's why a 360 degree approach is needed in order to ma manage different kind of crises. And, and societies to be be uh, prepared. So we have uh, we have defined uh, seven vital functions for society we need to take care of in all circumstances. And you can see that there's psychological resilience, there are internal security, defense capability, etc. And if you look the blue lines between all the corners of the diamond, I would say that it's the trust. And that's the trust again keeps the society together. And uh, it's 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 the it's a kind of the basement or the corner tone of, of a resilient society. And uh, it's done by collaborating in Finland. It's security belongs to everyone. All the vital functions are secured through collaboration between, between uh, ordinary citizens, authorities, uh, NGOs, and business community. And we have, a, this is kind of a, uh, government resolution, the security strategy for compre uh, security strategy for society, which lays the foundations for this concept of comprehensive security concept. And this means also that, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we started to collaborate with the social media influencers, and uh, we collaborated uh, in communications with NGOs, for example. And then. We have a security committee where our authorities are sitting around the same table, but there are also NGOs are sitting around the same table to the meeting regularly to discuss nationwide preparedness relating issues and, and so forth. And when we are talking about countering malign information influence activities, I'm not talking of the schools and I'm not talking about media literacy, media education. Instead, I'm talking about what we did at prime ministers of with other agencies. And in 2014, when 
when uh, after the illegal illegal annexation of Crimea by Russia, and when we started to see campaigns, disinformation campaigns targeting Finland, other Western countries. So we thought that we need to do something in a more coordinated manner. And then we it was already clear that the model we are going to adopt and follow is the concept of comprehensive security, that we need to collaborate. We need to forget uh, those silos between administrative branches that as a small nation, silos are a very expensive hobby. We cannot afford it again. So we need to collaborate. We need to collaborate with uh, universities. We need, we need to collaborate with business communities, etc., and so forth. And then we started uh, that the, the, uh, we do our part to raise ordinary citizens' awareness. And again, the most important part, and uh, again, are schools and <laughs> news media um, by doing their everyday uh, job. And then, of course, we started updating our guidelines and, and develop cooperation, collaboration also not only inside Finland, but also between different countries, European Union, etc. And then one thing was that we started to support our stakeholders. I don't know how me and my colleagues that how many lectures, briefings we have given that during the past years. And uh, we have in, and in Finnish news media, they have invited us almost all of the major players in that field to visit them and to brief the journalists about what is uh, what uh, Stratcom and what uh, information influence is all about. And again, that when we visited the newsrooms, we always reminded that that when we are entering the news news media newsroom, that we are not there to tell the journalists that what kind of sources they should use, etc. No, there is a thick firewall between government and independent news media. News media is news media, and government is government. There is a both have own role in society, and we re fully respect uh, the integrity of 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 news media and journalists. But that was also an example that in a small small nation, a small country like Finland, and then for us it's easy to collaborate with, even though that one is representing news media and one is representing government or business community, etc. And so it's it's kind of everyday everyday business here in Finland. And uh, then again, talking about co collaboration, then. And, uh, super, and safeguarding the vital functions of our, our society. And the business community is also doing collaboration with uh, authorities. And they are using, even though that they are competitors, they are collaborating when, when we are talking about security and preparedness. And if you look the picture, then there are uh, sectors uh, in our society. There's the food supply, energy, transport and logistics, health, finance, industri uh, industry, and other. And there is the media, for example. So the, the, there are pools and which are run by uh, businesses, business community. And it's kind of a collaborative platform where, uh, for example, the media pool where I'm a member, I'm representing the National Cybersecurity Center uh, and the, the Finnish Transport and Communications uh, Agency there. We are meeting with the chief editors uh, quite regularly and discuss about preparedness and security related issues. We are, we are absolutely not discussing anything about the contents, absolutely not. But then, then if uh, we can share, if we see that there are new kind of threat uh, scenarios or threat, uh, threat, uh, uh, threat models we are seeing here in Finland, then we can share this kind of information. And also finance in the finance sector is doing exactly the same, same 
and uh, chemical and and also defense sector are doing exactly the same, or retail and distribution sector are doing. Even though that they, those business, uh, the companies are competitors, then when we are talking about security and preparedness, then we can sit around the same table and discuss and share info information and uh, and share our experiences. And this whole model supports uh, our society's preparedness related issues. And also when we are talking about uh, uh, disinformation, et cetera, so they, these, they are disinformation uh, or in general talking information influence or melanin information influence activities, they are talking in every single sector uh, of our society. So we have, a, they have, a, these uh, sectors have, uh, and pools have organized uh, exercises, preparedness exercises and authorities have participated in that, in, in those exercises. But again, this kind of, uh, for me, it represents uh, the kind of, uh, the idea of comprehensive security and the importance of collaboration in dealing with uh, modern, modern threats uh, we, are, we are facing today and we are going to face also tomorrow. I'm a very shy Finnish civil servant. I, I'm, I, in my previous position at the Prime Minister's office, I was a teacher at the national defense, communications teacher at the national defense courses. And I think one of the best course feedback I received was that there is an unbelievable civil servant who can, when he's talking, he inhales and exhales simultaneously. So no, no breaks at all. But I, it's now better that if I just shut my mouth and give the floor to, uh, floor to others. Thank you. That's amazing. Thank you so much, uh, you see. That was, uh, you combined two um, uh, very strong elements there. One was comprehension, the other was engagement, which uh, is absolutely brilliant. As a facilitator, myself, a presenter, lessons for me there. Um, fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Um, interestingly, of course, as is always the case um, in any discussion of the Nordic countries, uh, trust, collaboration, Public spaces, education uh, comes through very, very strongly. Um, but I think I will remember your talk most for the retractable church tower. Um, and also, I like the fact that you talked about collaboration, being more serious, your collab collaboration with social media influencers. I thought yeah. that's an interesting sort of um, uh, approach, um, in intelligent sort of uh, approach, as opposed to sort of um, a conflicting one. And there is one thing I would like to mention uh, regarding the social media companies. Of course, we have been discussing many years about the problems uh, in their business models. And for us, uh, as for a small nation, and there are just 5.5 million Finnish speakers, and all the other small Nordic countries and Baltic states, we have the same problem. Mm. For and for and for example, when those tech, tech giants, Meta and others, are developing their tools to uh, or their platforms to and algorithms and AIs to detect, uh, for example, disinformation, disinformation on hate speech, and what they do first that they teach those AIs first in English language or French or other major languages, and then. Estonians, they have we have 1.5 million people. We have 5.6 million people. Danes have about the same in Denmark level living. So then, I'm I'm personally really frustrated frustrated with these companies that usually they tend to appear before the elections and then they, they have beautiful PowerPoint presentations and they tell beautiful nice stories about how they are protecting uh, the uh, elections and blah blah blah. 
but then the reality is totally different. But I don't know how many times, for example, Facebook has apologized during the past past years. So, and for us, uh, the European Union is the right context to deal with these issues. And finally, the European Union took action. So the new legislation, the DSA and DMA, finally came into force. So that as ordinary citizens, we have more rights to know how these companies are using our personal information and data. And also, uh, they need they are obliged to open up uh, the lot. Um, the logic behind the algorithms so they're more transparency and they, they are more ac accountable uh, for us so it's it's a good good step but for for small nation we have had problems with those companies for uh, earlier but as i said that we are a member of the european union so it's it's a big benefit for us thank you you see for that and that is a beautiful segue in fact to uh, our scottish responders um, um, so on the issue of uh, uh, Brexit and, and, and the EU, um, I know Chris is perhaps going to touch on, on that in his uh, uh, response. Um, and then I saw Claire from the government uh, nodding along as well. So um, lots to talk about there in terms of the social media companies as well. Um, Chris, would you like to talk for five, ten minutes um, uh, in response to UC's presentation from a Scottish perspective? Over to you. Yes, I mean... I Great presentation and lots of really striking points to pick up on. Um, I will probably uh, leave Claire to talk more about the, you know, some of the policy detail and so on. But I think I'll, I'll talk more generally about some of these issues um, and how they impact in different societies. I think there's two general things I would say as somebody who studies communication, media, and journalism that um, are, are really, really striking about uh, the, the similarities. Um, the first is a question. There are two tensions, I think, overall in media communications and journalism. The first one, uh, I would say, is this age-old question of, is communication somehow inherently virtuous and good? And this is something which goes with everybody, I expect, will have heard of Marshall McLuhan and all those arguments. But it's something, it's one of these questions which always returns whenever you're thinking about media and communications. You're always thinking about this question of um, uh, narratives which tend to position the idea of connectivity and communications as inherent public goods and uh, more nuanced um, approaches. Now, I would say that the difference in a Scottish UK Anglosphere context is that I think we still have attitudes which were kind of set out in the 90s and round about the millennium, the time, of course, of the great dot-com bubble. And those attitudes very much uh, informed a kind of utopian thinking about communications uh, and your communications technology and the communications economy, and this is all going to lead to these kind of sunny uplands in the new century. And I think that there, it's, it's really interesting that UC was pointing out, you know, 2009 is this year where, these, where, where things began to change. I think one of the problems that we have in Scotland and the UK is that that change has been very slow because we have a media system which is essentially a very light touch self-regulation from the media, and is still essentially informed by those kind of values, values which are, uh, you know, involve a kind of utopian uh, Silicon Valley narrative that communication, uh, the communication is almost like a, the perfect commodity, but also something that uh, promotes inherent social goods. And of course, um, the example of disinformation and all the various problems that we've seen 
is uh, it's a very good um, demonstration of the fact that increasing communications capacity uh, and increasing communications technology comes with big trade-offs as any new technology does. And I would say as well, I think when it comes to, I'd be very interested to, um, I think about some of the, the very uh, controversial issues or the kind of culture wars that have emerged in the Anglosphere and get and to have a finished perspective on that. Obviously, we can think of Brexit, we can think of uh, culture wars around gender identity and sexuality, uh, which um, perhaps in Scotland have been particularly amplified because we have uh, a media system, we have an, an, a Scottish Parliament, but we don't really have a fully-fledged uh, media system and a wider sense of an informed society, which I thought was so well um, demonstrated by that picture of the square with a parliament building facing the public library. So, I mean, at the moment we have a royal palace opposite the Scottish parliament building. So my big suggestion from this meeting is that we turn uh, Holyrood House, uh, the royal palace in Edinburgh into a public library. Um, Hope, hopefully we'll get the, the, uh, the government behind that soon. But I, I would also say, um, obviously, um, the other, so the other tension that, that you often see within communications and, and uh, the, the point about Facebook there is obviously very crucial, but you tend to see uh, a, a swing between the idea that communications is, uh, that, that, that media and journalism are, and, and digital platforms are moving us towards this global village, these international platforms, where we will all gradually, where the, the nation state will eventually kind of ebb away or become uh, a remnant of what it has been and what it is today. But in actual fact, I think you are seeing a trend. Uh, there's a scholar um, at Loughborough University whose name escapes me at the moment, but, but, but she writes, uh, she's writing and thinking a lot about the idea that we're actually swinging back to uh, a situation where we have platform nations, which refers to the fact that there is this new, not just at the EU level, but also at national levels across the world as well. Uh, there is this you know, increasing concern and agenda around how you work with big tech or regulate big tech in order to create safe uh, national spaces. And obviously that with Facebook, the example that we all know of as the most extreme example of that is the the, uh, the the situation with the, with the Rohingya in, in, in Myanmar, where they, they were found to be, uh, you know, the, these these are organisations which um, they they their their attitudes to social responsibility are are very questionable, to put it mildly, and and there is also just the simple matter of that the, their model is that they do not employ that many people in relation to the the value that they generate in the global economy. And I think there, there probably is a need to start to tackle that. Um, one of the things I would say uh, in relation, again, going back to this idea of uh, what we do, what we could do in Scotland with, uh, to, to learn some of these lessons from Finland, um, I'm really struck by that. I'm interested in journalism and I think we often focus too much on journalism. I think there is a, a wider and knowledge base that is required in society, which is about things like education and libraries. And I think the governments have not have not been very good um, in, in the UK and in Scotland about connecting these things. We think of journalism and we think of media as something which is not 
uh, which is you should predominantly be deregulated or self-regulated. Uh, and basically, and the essential essence of communications policy in the UK is to create large conglomerates. And we know that the creation of those conglomerates and this, you know, the centralization that occurs uh, and the lack of control that then is established at a local level, we know that that has been disastrous for the provision of journalism in Scotland. Um, and one of the things that I think would be interesting um, I'll maybe just leave this here uh, as a little uh, thought on, on what we could perhaps practically do. Um, there is, uh, at, the, at the moment, there are 675 uh, students enrolled in uh, journalism courses at undergraduate level in Scottish universities. So, uh, we don't, it's very difficult to establish how many journalists there actually are working in Scotland. Anybody who has worked as a journalist in Scotland will tell you that, uh, that um, creating around 700 new journalists every year in Scotland is creating you know, um, too many in terms of the number of journalistic jobs that there are. NewsQuest, for example, um, the owners of the Herald and various other newspapers at a UK level, NewsQuest employs 571 journalists um, across the UK and has various different titles. So if you think about it, if you think about that, uh, you know, anomaly that we're, we're training up around about 700 journalists and the UK-wide news organisations are only employing about 500 or 600. There is this interesting question, I think, of what might we do with all of these people who are presumably receiving you know, excellent media education, learning all of these skills, learning about you know, a really interesting, cutting edge, changing part of the economy. Um, and I think that one of the things, we, one of the ways we can maybe think about it is, well, actually, what, what if we thought of those people who are trained to be journalists now as people who are actually in five or 10 years time going to be adopting some kind of role in society which is somewhere in between a journalist, somewhere in between a journalist and a librarian and a teacher, and the idea that perhaps we will learn as a society in, in the way that, that Finland is kind of showing us to link up all of these things in terms of the way we think about uh, these you know, traditional roles and breaking down those traditional roles and thinking actually what we need is um, is an informed society and we certainly have bright enough people the problem is that the institutions in Scotland that, that traditionally provided that are, are in a bad way um, and are in decline so uh, I, I suppose I would um, uh, my two responses would be absolutely uh, let's let's get that library opposite the parliament and also let's think about a slightly more a diverse and imaginative role and a wider role that all of these people that we're training as journalists could play um, in terms of achieving some of these aims. So I'll leave it there. Brilliant. Thanks you so much, uh, Chris. Well, well done for powering through. I know you got, you've got a cold, so uh, um, that was uh, excellently well done. I love the idea of turning Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood into a public uh, uh, library. Claire, I could see you nodding throughout a lot of that uh, as well. Um, I did say I'd give you the, the, the floor for uh, a little comment from the Scottish Government's uh, uh, perspective. So over to you, Claire. 
Thanks very much, Stan. And uh, you see, who you who you ilta? Who you ilta? <laughs> That's good evening in Finnish. <laughs> um, thank you so much for the invite. I mean, the invite came in literally a few hours ago, um, and so I'm I'm kind of winging it a wee bit, but um, I'm actually. It's so fortuitous because today I've just returned from a, a huge cyber summit in Edinburgh where we actually had the ambassador from um, the Estonian government talking as well as our own politicians and members of the FBI. And what was coming out very strongly was this whole concept of um, trust um, and, and how people trust the messages that come and which messages do they trust in terms of cybersecurity and cyber resilience? Um, and, and just to introduce myself before I start on that, my, um, I'm, I'm the head of the Cyber Resilience Unit in the Scottish Government. And my role really is to ensure that we implement our national strategy in cyber resilience. Um, and I work with partners across all the different sectors to, to make that happen, working with um, third public private sectors and, and into communities. Um, the cabinet secretary who's responsible for that um, is Mr. Brown, who's the cabinet secretary for justice and veterans, as well as obviously all ministers are very interested in this subject. But, um, but going back to today, um, in the Estonian ambassador was saying that they work very closely with Finland and they, they seem to present a similar kind of approach in terms of public trust in government. Um, and, you know, I sometimes wonder if that's because of the kind of the relatively um, young age of Estonia, that you can probably embed lots of kind of new ways of working if you become a digital, from the outset, you become a digitally advanced nation. And the challenge here, I think, in Scotland is that on a personal level, this is my viewpoint, not government's, um, is that I think intrinsically Scottish people, you know, worry about being online and, you know, doing their their, their, their kind of um, their business online in terms of pay, paying, paying yeah, um, bills online and so on. And so there's a, there's a huge barrier, I think, that we still need to cross with that. Um, but I think things are moving on. So in the UK, we have the National Cyber Security Centre, which is the authoritative source for, for trusted advice and guidance in terms of what to do um, to kind of prevent a, a cyber um, incident happening or what to do if something happens and you know how to get help. Um, and, and I think over the past few years, we're starting to get the messaging out there, but I think the challenge is, is that people know when they're online that there's a risk of being online and they're kind of aware that if they click on links or whatever, that might lead to something quite um, unfortunate for them. But knowing about the risk doesn't seem to change people's behaviours. Which is really, which is a really strange place to be at, um, and what the National Cybersecurity Centre says, they say that you know if you do three or four simple things, 
they can that can really present uh, prevent about 80 to 90 percent of all cyber incidents happening so it's things like using a strong password um using three random words turning on two-step verification updating your device devices backing them up you know really quite simple steps for everybody but how do we get our population to our citizens to do that and I, I guess that's one of my questions for for you you see is 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 that just intrinsic is that just inherent in the Finnish mentality that you would you know be doing these kind of preventative actions just like we you know put on our seatbelt automatically um how, how do we get to the point where people think before they click on on phishing emails and and that's i think that's a it's a really what you know but in a worrying kind of position at the moment where people and businesses and large organizations and governments are staff staff are still clicking on these links which could lead, lead to terrible consequences for for that organization or that individual or family or community so there's something there that i would be dead interested to to have further talks with you you, you see on that um i mean collaboration is really i i think one of the strongest points in scotland you know where we're someone called a, we're a goldilocks nation where we're not too big and we're not too small we're just right in terms of size so it's very easy to bring bring together the right people very quickly and in scotland in terms of cyber resilience and it's not cyber security because cyber security is a reserved matter for the uk government cyber resilience which is about kind of preventative work and um, we have a cyber scotland partnership which has all the key key players and partners from education health business private sector third sector who come together and we plan ahead on what are the kind of key awareness raising messages that need to go out to different uh, communities across Scotland and tailoring, tailoring, tailoring them according to that community. Um, so that's going well, it's in, it's in its infancy, but I think it's a positive step forward. Um, and there's a real appetite for people to work together in Scotland as well. Um, so I, th I, th I think I, I just really wanted to say that. But the other thing that just struck me, uh, Chris, was when you were talking about the 675 students, the journalist students, I mean, this work can't be done by government alone or indeed the national agencies working together. It's actually kind of grassroots organisations, communities that can, can really make the difference. And we were talking today about well, what if there had, I mean, the biggest worry really, and probably for every country is that if there was multiple, if there were multiple cyber incidents of a country, would you be able to handle and manage them? I mean, there was the SEPA incident, which is which was the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency incident that happened two Christmases ago. Now, you know, the reality is, if if there had been multiple concurrent incidences at that time, Scotland would have really struggled to manage them and get the organisations back up and running. And thankfully, it was only one big incident that happened. But even now, that organisation is still reeling from 
you know, the, 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 the kind of catastrophic events that happened. So we were thinking today about, you know, how, how, can, you, how can we brigade people to, to be part of the, the defence of the country? You know, and we were talking about, you know, perhaps we, you know, during incidents we could have almost cyber su support people, cyber resilience, volunteers. And then when you talked about the journalists, I was thinking, well, maybe there's an opportunity there for us to be using journalists in terms of that preventative messaging work. I just want to thank um, our uh, speaker uh, tonight, you see Soivanen. Thank you so much, you see. Really appreciate uh, your time. Thank you so much. And uh, Chris, for uh, uh, your response, really valuable input there. And, and to Claire um, as well, given the Scottish Government's uh, perspective, um, and to everyone else who has uh, uh, posted comments and questions in the chat, thank you very, very much. Um, I will definitely remember uh, from tonight the idea of attractable towers and um, turning Hollywood into a library. <laughs>